I mean, it's kind of cute, right? Hello, and welcome back to Kinda Cute. And if you're new here, welcome. My name is Bailey Evan. I'm your host, and on Kinda Cute, we discuss articles from the cut and my general pop culture musings. Let's start with some fluffy pop culture news first, guys. Lacey Chabert of Gretchen Wieners and Lifetime Movies fame is currently promoting a special edition Mean Girls toaster strudel on her Instagram. And any Mean Girls fan will know that this is iconic because Gretchen Wiener's father is the inventor of toaster strudel. And in case you're wondering, they are strawberry flavored, but come with a fun pink icing packet so that you can write fetch on top. That's what it has in the little graphic of it. This is just the best partnership I've ever heard of. No SpawnCon will ever be greater than this. The only thing that could potentially have been better is if Gretchen was I'm sorry, Lacey was supporting Pop-Tarts because the drama of that, like the toaster strudel nemesis competitor. I don't know. I might have to buy a pack, A, because I fucking love toaster strudels. That frosting slaps like no other. And just because it's just a piece of, of pop culture history that I think I need in my freezer. I might need to get one just to keep for 50 years and another to eat. Emma Roberts has confirmed her pregnancy with the hunky little Garrett Headland. I'd still like to know Evan Peters' thoughts on this because I'm pretty sure we talked a while, like a while ago on here that we thought Emma Roberts was potentially pregnant. And even back then, I wanted to know Evan Peters' thoughts because I kind of thought they were in it for the long haul, even with all their drama. And then other baby news. We have a lot this week. Ed Sheeran and his girl, Cherry, they gave birth to their daughter. They named her Lyra Antarctica Seaborn cherry and in case you're like what the fuck oh i'm sorry (laughs) seaborn sheeran i don't know why i wrote cherry again that's his that's his wife fiance whatever they are that's her name and in case you are like what the fuck what kind of name is that uh they are clearly dark materials fans it's a book series i have the first one book of dust and uh lyra is one of the main characters in it they actually have an HBO series too. It's called His Dark Materials, which we actually started watching and I kind of liked and I don't know why we stopped watching because I was into it. It's very fantasy. I love a fantasy moment. Kenzie was wondering the same thing. Like, why did we stop? Uh, Lala Kent is also pregnant with her man's Randall Emmett. It's a baby. She announced it on her podcast. I'm predicting that Brittany and Katie are close behind in their pregnancies since we, you know, you have Stassi, you have Lala. I think they'll all follow suit. This is really the death of Vanderpump Rules. I, It's um, a realization I'm coming to terms with. <laughs> oh, it might take me a little while to get over, but maybe it had run its course. Maybe it was time. A free Britney update. She wants Bessemer Trust Company to serve as the conservator, and she wants it to become a voluntary conservatorship and have a little more control over things like her performances, stuff like that. She would still be under a conservatorship, but honestly, I think this will be a great move for Brit Brit if it goes through. Wish her the best. I think we might be reaching a resolution on this whole conservatorship thing. Guys, the Dancing with the Stars lineup is a true 2020 extravaganza. And I haven't watched Dancing with the Stars for the past few seasons, but I have to say that this lineup might draw me back in. First up, we have Nelly of It's Getting Hot in Her. And I hear Nelly is a delight in person. I feel like everyone who meets him just has something lovely to say about him. I can really see him winning over the judges and the audiences. We have Jesse Metcalf, who I most associate with Win a Date with Tad Hamilton. Great movie. I was always more of a 
Topher Grace fan, but you know, to each their own. Um, Cause wasn't he in a, was he in that movie or was he like in a movie like that? I might've just totally transposed two movies. Cause I feel like there was another movie that Topher Grace was in where he was like a star and someone wins a date with him. Oh my God, guys, I should have looked that up beforehand. I said that so confidently. And then I was like, wait, I think my mind transposed two things. <laughs> Anyways, another thing about Jesse Metcalf is that he actually just starred in Lala Man's movie, Randall's latest movie. And he appeared on the red carpet via Zoom because they actually had, it was like the first red carpet they had had since COVID. And I think it was like a drive-in movie situation is how they did the premiere, but they did have a red carpet. Has anyone seen this movie? It's called Hard Kill and Lala is in it too and Jesse. So at first you're thinking, wow, it's like, you know, it's kind of a B-side cast, even though I said I think Lala is an amazing actress. But weirdly, Bruce Willis is also in this movie. So... Oh, I don't know. You're right. Yeah, Machine Gun Kelly is in one of Randall's movies, but I'm not sure if it's this one. I think I think that's a different one, but I'll look into that. Uh, we also have Caitlin Bristow from The Bachelorette. She's many people's favorite Bachelorette. Monica Aldama from my favorite Netflix show of the year, Cheer. You know I love that shit. If only Jerry and Monica were on it together, I would have loved to see them like go against one another. Sky Jackson, she is an ex-Disney star. She famously called out people on their racist shit just recently over quarantine. She did it over Twitter. She was exposing people left and right. And speaking of exposing people, we also have Nev Shulman from Catfish, which like that, I, I just think this cast is iconic, guys. Chris Shell from Selling Sunset fame and Justin Hartley dumping her fame. Johnny Ware, the ice skater, who frankly I am shocked has never been on Dancing with the Stars before. I was like trying to Google. I was like, is this Johnny Ware's second time on Dancing with the Stars? Because I just... I don't buy that he's never been on it because a ice skaters are a very popular choice for being on dancing with the stars. They usually win because they, they already have to dance on ice. Like this is making their job easier getting to dance on fucking hard ground. Um, and Johnny Ware is like queen of being in everything and just taking every opportunity that comes his way. I love that about him. Um, so I'm still convinced he was actually on this before, but maybe I'm just having like a uh, Mandela effect thing going on with that. And then lastly, well, not lastly, there's other people on it, but these are the ones I felt like talking about. We have Carol Baskin, of course, of Tiger Fame Infamy. I don't know. Again, I think it's a fire lineup. And to make it even better, Tyra Banks is the host. Aaron Andrews and Tom Bergeron are out. And another level of intrigue and drama that's being added to this season is that there is a new rule that requires all the pros, even if they are married to another pro, you know, so like some dancers who are married to one another, they have to be quarantined apart from each other. So the only people that they can see during this time are their partner, the celeb partner and the pro dancer partner. And they say, obviously, this is, you know, to prevent an issue if, if someone tests positive for COVID, it wouldn't knock out both pros. It would just knock out one. But people are getting frisky with their partners every year on this show. And I think it's going to be even heightened this year because of that. Um, I also wanted to do an F factor update. We kind of have a lot to unpack. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, maybe hit that one up first because I did a summary of the F factor diet drama with Tanya Zuckerbrot, Emily Gellis, and maybe I did not do a great job of explaining because one of my friends, uh, she texted me. She goes, 
wait, so who is Emily Gellis? And I was like, oh, like, you know, listen, listen to my episode. She goes, no, I already did. Like, I don't, I don't understand how she plays into it. So I'm going to give another little quick overview before I get into some of the updates I've seen watching like Emily's lives this week. So Tanya Zuckerbot is a dietitian. She started the F-Factor diet back in 2006. It's a high fiber, low carb diet. It also has calorie controls. In 2018, Tanya started selling powders and bars that are high fiber uh, diet supplements, basically. Now, shit hit the fan starting with at Dumois, which is a popular gossip Instagram. Definitely follow her if you haven't yet. She's really been blowing up over quarantine because she started taking people's um, experiences they've had when they see celebrities out. So people will send things in like, oh my God, I saw David Harbour eating at Hearth and talking about Lily Allen. That's one I recently saw. And then Dumois posts the stories usually anonymously. She herself is anonymous. No one knows who Dumois actually is. So... It started with Dumois posting a story where someone said Tanya Zuckerbrot of F-Factor had said the following. I'm reading what this post said. She would tell me that if Holocaust victims who went into concentration camps overweight could lose weight, then so could I. She told me the most important thing was stay in control at all times of my food and that if the antidepressant was causing weight gain, that too was a choice. She also told me I, if I stayed on it, as in the antidepressant, I was choosing mediocrity. Feel free to print this. I hope it helps other women to snap out of it. Now, Emily Gellis is a fashion influencer. She saw Dumas' post. She was disgusted by this, especially as someone who believes in and takes antidepressants. I mean, same here. I talk about it all the time. Like 100% love my Lexapro. And again, we talked last week about how Tanya is Jewish, but this Holocaust imagery is a huge, huge yikes. I mean, comparing a voluntary diet to the horror that was and is the Holocaust, I just, no, don't, don't do that. So Emily posted about it and people started sending in their own horror stories with the F-Factor diet. So Emily was kind of a conduit for people who had been on the diet to share their stories. And Emily is now saying that she's received over 10,000 complaints from people and people are reporting that they've experienced a host of issues from these products, the bars and the powders. We have stomach issues, hair loss, period loss, rashes, hives, general malaise basically from these products. The list goes on and on and on. And a lot of people are saying, you know, I never made the connection, but when I stopped with the powders and the bars, the symptoms went away. All right. So that's a little recap for you. I'm sorry if you guys are sick of hearing that story, but I wanted to just do that really quickly to hopefully make it clear kind of how we got to where we are now. And I meant to bring up last week, you know, I was talking about how the health scene is like a buku bucks business. And do you guys remember the $40 million house that they were selling on Selling Sunset? And people were wondering who bought it. And they're like, we're not going to talk about that. Like we keep our clients secret. Well, it turns out that it was the founder of Quest Bars. His name is Tom Bilyeu and he purchased it for $35.5 Shout out to my friend Emily for turning me on to that info. I wasn't aware of that. So Quest Bars are those like low carb bars. I definitely eat them. I used or did used to eat them all the time. And I just wanted to add that in to really highlight that selling health shit makes you a pretty penny when it does well. Okay, so Kenzie's saying that she used to like Quest Bars, but now they taste disgusting. And I think that's because they changed the formula. Honestly, I think... 
Yeah. Okay. So period, they used to taste way better. Now they taste like shit, but he's still buying himself a $35.5 million house. So jokes on us. All right. So the big development since we last talked is, you know, obviously I just told you guys that comment about the antidepressants, the Holocaust. You remember, I just said it two seconds ago. So Emily went on her live and she wouldn't call her out by name, but let me tell you, she very strongly insinuates, and I'm going to say it for her, that this comment came from a small influencer called at Jewel the Bee. If you follow the Skinny Confidential, she's done guest posts on there. And I'm sorry, guys, I'm really not trying to get into too much like insular influencer nitty gritty drama here, but I've seen a lot of people wondering about this, so I just kind of wanted to put it out there for anyone who's like what what is going on so there's been a lot of rumblings about this influencer lunch that was hosted by f factor and allegedly jewel the bee left this lunch crying and this has led people to think that she sent the comment to jumois about the antidepressants and the holocaust because she was pissed about whatever happened at that lunch no one knows who knows i don't know so the issue that Emily is having with Jewel the Bee, again, I'm surmising here. I'm drawing an inference from what Emily is saying, is that Emily, that Jewel is not standing by the original comment she made when she said you can print this comment and whatever, but now she will not publicly stand behind this statement. And by doing so, Emily feels like essentially she's throwing her under the bus and not giving any credence to this statement that basically blew this whole thing up. So I think if anyone was confused about, you know, if you're seeing things about this influencer lunch, if you're seeing stuff about Jewel the Bee, yada, 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 from what I can tell, that's what's going on with that. Correct me if I'm wrong. Please feel free. DM me. Email me. You can find me at Kinda Cute Podcast or at Bailey Evan. We can chat. And Emily has also hinted that this goes beyond the powders and it's this sort of way bigger issue and I think she's insinuating again I'm just guessing I'm connecting lines that Tanya's husband Anthony Weistrich is sort of puppeteering all of this as a money grab we talked last week how he already has a lot of money on his own he does uh, real estate development I believe and she also insinuated that when Anthony's divorce was finalized from his previous wife he poured a ton of money into f-factor and on top of that the two just purchased a six million dollar house in my neck of the woods in Delray Florida and they will probably establish residency there so that they can homestead their property to give a little background on homestead uh, my house that I own, it also has a homestead exemption. Pretty much everyone who owns a house in Florida homesteads it because it gives you tax benefits, a little bit like of a tax break. Um, there's also other things that make it appealing to move here. We don't have a state income tax. So establishing your residency here can be appealing, can be appealing place to come for people with large amounts of money. It's probably why every rich person has a house in Palm Beach and people like Epstein had a place here. And on top of all of that, Homestead protects your home from levy by creditors. So if you have a debt, the creditor can't force the sale of your house to cover that. So let's say someone gets a big judgment against you in court. They can't force you to use your house as an asset to pay for that judgment. So there's lots of like surmising over why they did that. Again, I think it's like kind of a 
regular course of business move. And I'm, I don't think they'll even be able to get homestead on their house for this tax year. They would have to, I think you have to be living in your house as of January 1st of the year you're claiming homestead. So it probably won't be able to kick in for them until next year. But again, just, just worth, you know, discussing. And another update is someone who says that they've been following this for two years. They sent a message to Emily saying that Anthony, the husband, moved Tanya into the office adjacent to him. They cut corners to produce the powders and bars with large markups. So this allowed the company to grow pretty rapidly. And they bought so much inventory that when the pandemic hit, they basically had to give away the products before they expired. So Tanya was making this big to-do about, oh, we're donating all of these products to the cause. But this person saying, like, no, she was just doing that because the products were about to expire. And I've just been starting to see more messages like this, just talking about money and the intrigue in it and how the money's always been the bottom line, which, again, no shit. That's the health and wellness industry for you right now. People are trying to make a buck off it. Uh, fans of Emily started a GoFundMe for her because she's hiring an attorney for potential criminal claims against her. And... This is something I kind of wanted to touch on with this whole issue is that I think so many times people think, oh, if you're on the side of truth and you haven't done anything illegal, then it's fine. Like even if you get a criminal claim brought against you, a civil claim brought against you, it doesn't matter. But the problem with this is lawsuits are really expensive. Even if you didn't do anything wrong, even if you whatever. It doesn't matter. If someone brings a lawsuit against you and you have to hire an attorney to protect your interests, that is expensive. As an attorney myself, if I had a criminal claim brought against me, well, I'd probably get my dad to do it. He does criminal law, but let's just say hypothetically, I didn't have my dad to do that for me. I would hire a criminal lawyer because I know nothing about criminal law. I would have to hire someone to protect my interest in that. And I wouldn't feel good representing myself. And I wouldn't recommend to anyone to represent themselves pro se. It's asking for trouble because the law is vast and wide and hiring someone who's not specializing in what you're being litigated for, it just probably isn't going to end up well. So I think there's just this whole thinking that, oh, like it's fine, like, but it's not realizing how quickly lawyers fees get racked up, even if you are completely not in the wrong with something. On top of that, lawyers usually charge a pretty hefty retainer just to hire them, usually between five and $20,000 just to hire them. And what happens is you pay that retainer. That's the minimum you will pay. So as you are charged, your fees are going to come out of that retainer and you can always be charged more than that retainer. But at the least, you are going to have paid that. And a lot of people are like, oh, there's, you know, contingency fees where like you only get, uh, you only have to pay if you you win. Okay. Well, that's also sort of an incorrect way of thinking because a contingency cases are usually only if you're bringing a case that could potentially have a big windfall win for the law. So, you know, you're bringing a case that maybe you could win a hundred thousand bucks from. All right. So, you know, the lawyer gets a cut of that. But the issue is on top, even if it's a contingency case, you're still going to have to pay the fees and expenses. And Secondly, if you have a criminal case against you, a lawyer isn't going to take that on a contingency fee basis. They're either going to take that on a retainer basis and then charge you by the hour or they're going to pay you or charge you a flat fee. So again, I just want people to be clear on that, that 
just because you are so called like in your mind innocent or whatever it's no joke when you're getting litigated against and that's the problem when these people just have money to throw around and they can bring a case against you you have to defend yourself and you have to pay to do that Okay, let's talk about our next story. We're going to talk about Matt DeRoff, who some people are calling a modern-day Dirty John, if you guys are familiar with that story. And not to mention Dumas again, but I thought it was really crazy if you know the Dirty John story. Um, Tara, who's kind of the real-life protagonist in that story, she took issue with the story I'm about to tell you being compared to Dirty John, and she thinks the girl who told the story, Samantha Hills is her name, at Samantha B. Hills on Instagram, Tara thinks she's maybe a little suspicious. So I'm going to give you a quick background. If you want to hear the whole story, I'd recommend looking at her Instagram and listening to episode 471 of Heather McDonald's podcast because she had Samantha Hills on and she goes in depth into the whole story. All right. So Sam matched with Matt on Hinge. And to put this in a time context for you, they went on their first date on May 30th, 2020. So this was all during quarantine and really not that long ago. And their relationship moved super fast. He moved in with her. He met her mom. They are talking about the future literally like within one week of dating one another. And I'm trying not to judge and victim blame here, but damn, that's fast, especially during a global pandemic. Like, I don't think I've seen a man in six months, let alone like moved in with one, but okay, I'm trying to reserve judgment here. So he moves in, he installs all of this monitoring equipment, like Wi-Fi routers. He tells her that he is in the CIA and that he's going to need her social security number and all this other personal identifying information about her to clear her with the CIA higher ups, if you will. He tells her that he sold his tech company for $15 million. And I'm sure homegirl is seeing dollar dollar bill signs. But then things start to deteriorate. She asked him to buy a rug on Target.com and uh, he didn't. It just like didn't come. (laughs) And she asked him to chip in on her mortgage payment for her apartment in Chicago and he just like wouldn't. But then somehow, and I was... I was a little confused how this logical leap happens, but she decides it's a good idea to buy a house with this man. So she puts her apartment on the market so that they can buy a $4 million house together. And it's at this point that he backs out and she realizes that everything was sort of a facade, a lie. And as far as I can tell, this dude was shady as hell. I find him deeply unattractive, but I guess girls were into him. They think he's cute. I think he has like five chins and horrible fashion sense and like kind of makes me want to barf, but that's neither here nor there, I guess. Uh, But it's fascinating because he told Sam that apparently he's done this sort of thing to thousands of girls. And, you know, I have a question for for you guys who've heard the whole story, who've really delved into this. I kind of felt like what he was doing was more mooching than anything else. Like, it wasn't outright stealing. It was kind of just, like, getting a free place to live. Um, but, the but I mean, the faking the... There's obviously... Again, I'm not defending this dude's action. It's sketch as hell. But it, I, I saw some differences between Dirty John and this story. But I think the creepiest thing is that she keeps finding little hidden cameras all over her house. And one thing he's doing that is definitely trying to steal across the line is she says that... She thinks he's using her information to like try to buy cars, stuff like that. And that obviously is 
way beyond mooching. Um, but I wanted to touch on this story because it's particularly funny to me because two of my friends who wish to remain anonymous went to middle school and high school with this Matt Duralth dude. Now, <laughs> they both said that they had a crush on him in middle school, but then in high school they were like, nah, <laughs> I'll pass. <laughs> My one friend said she flirted with him through the baseball fence at Little League. My other friend said she had her first handhold and slow dance with his brother. Now, this was the most scandalous piece of info that they provided me, and I will preface this by saying it is purely rumor, but my friend said, and I quote, I heard a weird rumor that I never confirmed about Matt getting kicked out of Purdue University for trying to forge his transcripts. Dun, dun, dun. So I don't know. Can anyone corroborate that? I thought that was like, that was pretty scandalous. Got kicked out of Purdue? Allegedly. Kenzie, you're going to make me have to like cut all this stuff out. We got to get you on mic next time if you want to comment. All right, so our first article of the day, we have Million Dollar Beach House is the bleakest show on TV by Madeline Agler. Now, before we get into Madeline's skewering of this show, I wanted to give my input on it. So a lot of people are comparing it as the like Hamptons version of Selling Sunset, which is obviously on the West Coast, in LA. And some people have been calling it the racist Selling Sunset. It's focused on three white male realtors, one white female realtor, and one black realtor. And they all sort of gang up on the black realtor. His name is Noel. So I think that's why it's been called you know, kind of racist. And I do have to say, I think the one person who never really ganged up on him, maybe didn't come to his defense on the television show. Who knows what was happening behind the scenes? But JB never really came for Noel. And JB went to college with me. He was a year below me. He was on the football team. And I didn't know him in college, but I actually asked him to come on the podcast and TBD if that actually happens. Um, One thing I wanted to ask him is if he studied abroad in Sydney because I studied abroad in New Zealand and there was like a 24-hour time period on my way back to the U.S. where I went to the club with some of the football guys that I went to college with and they were on the Sydney study abroad. And I swear he was with that group, but I could be 1,000% wrong about that, but that's sort of my little connection. Okay, sorry, very sidetracked. Another funny tieback to this show is that my friends rented a house in the Hamptons this summer very summer house of them and their realtor was Sarah who is the realtor who fights with Peggy and she has the long blonde extensions you'll know her when you see her so that was a fun little shock for my friends when they saw her on the show have you guys watched it like what are your thoughts I definitely prefer selling sunset because I think at their core they are kind of LA actresses and it's made by the dude who produced the hills so it's just a little more polished and done and it's a show like it's scripted you know And I think Million Dollar Beach House maybe would have benefited from just focusing on the houses instead of trying to have this weird Peggy, Noel, Sarah drama that I don't think really read very well. But I have to share with you what Madeline said. And maybe this will like kill any chance of JB ever coming on this podcast. And I know I keep promising you guys guests. I swear I'm trying, y'all. I try. Um... But again, these are Madeline's thoughts, not my own. So she says, it's hard to say exactly which scene in Million Dollar Beach House, the new Netflix reality show about a high-end real estate firm in the Hamptons, left me feeling the most despondent. 
There was the time the two wealthy realtors who look like bonobos models discussed the future of the real estate business while skateboarding around the lush backrobes of the Hamptons, forever tarnishing the name of skating in my mind. That was actually JB and Michael. <laughs> so it says there was the time one realtor, Michael, complained about getting his pregnant wife a push present, a gift someone gets for their pregnant partner to say, thanks for the baby, I guess. Michael said that while he appreciated her carrying his child around her womb for nine months, he had carried the baby in his balls for 30 years. Guys, this part had me howling. Like the fact, Michael, who is a millennial, said this was like some sort of millennial nonsense, the idea of a push present, which is A, just false. It's been around for way longer than that. He called his wife a vessel for their child, which made me want to barf. Um, yeah, I'm sure it was really hard for you to carry that sperm around your balls for 30 years. You didn't even have to have a damn period. So don't even get me started on Michael. Just he is JB's best friend. And I just want to be like, I want to ask JB in person, like, how? how? How is that a thing? And then it says, and of course, there was the time the three white guys in the firm got together to make fun of the clearly scripted but escalating drama between the one woman and the one black guy in the main cast. Oh, yeah, it's mm, I just feel bad that it does come down to like Peggy and Noel having this issue. But again, I have to say, I think Michael makes himself look like the biggest ass in this show. And then Madeline says, if watching Selling Sunset feels like resting your brain in a nice, cool infinity pool overlooking L.A., watching Million Dollar Beach House feels like dropping your brain into a recently divorced financial advisor's expensive new hot tub, an experience that's ostensibly picturesque, but also uncomfortable and deeply sad. Damn, that's a zinger. Okay, so remember how I was telling you about how Sarah, my friend's realtor, got in the fight with Peggy? This is what Madeline has to say about that. At one point, Peggy gets mad at someone named Sarah, whom the producers had seemingly pulled from thin air for not inviting her to a showing at a hotel where no one can figure out the accurate square footage. You are officially the fakest person I've ever met, Peggy says. It's a great line, but I had absolutely no idea who this woman Sarah was, so I didn't really care. But see, I did care because she was my friend's realtor, so I was invested in Sarah. I wanted more Sarah. All right, guys, next up. This is like a bummer of an article but it was juicy and I just feel like it has a lot of like thought-provoking things going on into it so let's let's get in it's called the eco yogi slumlords of Brooklyn by Bridget Reed y'all this is another story you need to strap in for because there are some twisty turns this story begins with an apartment located at 1214 Dean Street in Brooklyn New York it houses nine roommates one of its inhabitants Angie Martinez. She was 24 years old. She was paying $865 a month for a room with one hit window, no heat, and no working fire alarm. And I'd say she was probably kind of indicative of the other tenants that were in this place. Notably, this structure was actually classified as a single family home, but it was illegally converted and rented out room by room to nine people by two people named Gennaro Brooks Church and Loretta Gendville. So they are the main players in this. They are the landlords. And we're going to refer to them as BC and Lore. BC is the dude. Lore is the girl. Now, Angie, like many of the tenants, lost her job due to coronavirus, and she stopped paying rent. And I myself am a landlord. Um, so on the one hand, I see the struggle. And I had a lot of fear of, you know, what if my tenants can't play me during coronavirus? Like, how is that selfishly going to affect me? Um, 
so I would think if like anyone could kind of relate to this struggle, it would be someone who's a landlord and is a landlord during coronavirus. But I have to say like what these people did is so in my mind, despicable and disgusting. And there's really no excuse for it because it's not about even making your tenants pay during a virus. It's the fact, it's what they did leading up to us and how thinly they spread themselves. These people should not have been illegally converting homes into, you know, nine people rentals. But okay, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let, let's, let's dive in. So one day, the owners, BC and Lord, they showed up to 1214 Dean Street with their three kids, two dogs, two handymen, and a mattress. Now, Lord comes in guns a-blazing, allegedly grabbing at tenants by the wrist, ordering one to get the fuck out. She's calling the tenants squatters. And then the handymen, they just come in, they start changing the locks. So some of the tenants were like, fuck this, and they just ran out of there. They got their stuff, they ran. And, you know... While this is all happening, BC and Laura called the cops. And the cops show up and they tell the tenants that since it's BC and Laura's house, they can't make them leave. They're the owners. But also, you know, because of COVID and the eviction moratorium, the tenants can't be forced to leave either. So it's really kind of this, you know, standoff where BC just staked himself out in the living room and he wouldn't leave. And you guys might be thinking, that's pretty wild. Okay. But. It's the background to all of this that just got me that I was just like, what? Like, you can't make this shit up. So Madeline writes, it became apparent that the landlords were not just New Yorkers of considerable means. They were an ethically sourced, non-GMO, unmarried poster couple for a certain Brooklyn-specific subset of their tax bracket. BC, 49, was a green builder with a construction company called Eco Brooklyn, who had spoken about sustainability at the Brooklyn Public Library. He was a vocal advocate for designating the Gowanus Canal a Superfund site, making it eligible for environmental protections. He did CrossFit. Lore, 45, was the owner of a restaurant called Planted Community Cafe and a local chain of yoga studios, spas, and children's stores called Area. A mini mogul, according to the New York Times. The pair were currently renting out a brownstone they owned on Airbnb not five miles away with a treehouse and a turtle pond for nearly $800 a night. What could drive two yogic, environmentally conscious vegan brownstoners to kick out their unemployed tenants during a global pandemic? We're going to get into that. Also, shout out to this professor from Connecticut College who was just yelling, you white, liberal, phony, fake, selfish motherfucker. You belong in a Charles Dickens novel. He yelled that as he drove by 1214, but okay. So these people own two businesses and six properties in this hugely expensive real estate market, but they were effectively homeless. And the story of these people's come up is the most gentrification-ass shit I've ever heard in my life. So Lore, who wasn't even a yogi, sort of just predicted that there would be a yoga and baby boom in Brooklyn and capitalized on it. And like, damn, was she right? So she started Area Yoga and Baby, which grew to have tons of locations all over Brooklyn. And it's there at one of her classes that Laura met BC. Now, this dude has a crazy background. He grew up on Ibiza, Ibiza, and his parents were hunted by the feds for anti- war bombings in the 80s and his mom turned herself in but his dad got caught in arkansas for trying to pick up six million dollars worth of cocaine then bc became a follower of something called human design which is a pseudoscience combining astrology and chakras which i'm kind of into both maybe i should look into this <laughs> bc also worked at as a photographer he studied creative writing at columbia so him and laura start dating 
and they purchased 1214 Dean Street, which is what we were talking about earlier. They lived there for a while. Then they bought another brownstone in Carroll Gardens. That's where they raised their kids. So apparently when BC was renovating his house, he got this idea for his eco-building business. And even though the country was in a recession, for some reason the area kids that Laura owned, those stores boomed and his eco-renovations were kind of having a moment too. But beneath the surface, like, this shit wasn't so shiny. The yoga teachers say that the pay was low. It was rarely on time. Laura would get work students, um, work study students to clean the studios unpaid in exchange for yoga classes. And people would work for BC2 at his building business for free yoga classes. But then the couple bought another brownstone. And by 2009, they owned nearly $3 million in property. And it's also insane that they managed to only put down 10% for each of their property purchases because New York's like a notoriously, you know, rough place to own property in. And during all this time, they were illegally renting out 1214 Dean Street. Tenants say that the gas was frequently shut off. Lore is currently a defendant in four civil suits filed by Edison and Brooklyn Union Gas. The heating was bad. There were rats. And just the struggle that comes with housing nine people in a single family home. So Lauren BC would literally post signs saying not to let anyone from the city come in because this was an illegally converted rental. But one time there was a fire, so FDNY came and they charged them 2K for their illegal conversion because the place had two kitchens and it was clear it wasn't being used as a single family house. So... When the tenants demanded that BC take care of the rat situation, he warned them that their walls will be full of rat skeletons and their souls will haunt you. There was also a debate over whether he would shovel snow in front of the home, which is actually required by tenant laws in New York, and it ended with him writing, so sue me. And it seems like BC and Laura were actually pulling in 10K a month just in rental on this one property. And at the same time, they would sort of desperately Airbnb their other places. And the couple and their children, according to yoga teachers, would sometimes sleep in the yoga studios because every other property was occupied. And this didn't phase them. And they purchased more properties and they took out additional mortgages on their homes. And Laura kept purchasing more area stores where the workers were like, dude, instead of buying another store, could you like buy us some toilet paper maybe? So around 2017, when things were starting to become extra tenuous, Lore and BC broke up and she started dating a dude named Shepard, who was 22 years old and he worked as their manny. And the predictableness of that, I just, <laughs> I can't. He advertised himself as a carpenter, a pet sitter, a waiter, and a handyman. Uh, just a virtual renaissance man, guys. He had modeled in a portfolio of erotic photography and he had been to Burning Man. Wow, just two marks for Shepard. And at the same time, shit was just falling apart. Like a yoga teacher walked into class one morning and she saw naked people just sleeping under yoga blankets who apparently just been partying the night before in the studio. And when she told Laura about it, Laura literally said, oh, okay. And then one time they found Laura's boyfriend, Shepard, he was sleeping on an air mattress. And another time him and Laura were both sleeping on the air mattress. And this is one of my favorite parts of the whole article. It says one time a class had to be canceled last minute so that Laura could undergo a personal ayahuasca ceremony. 
I mean, that is some goop ass shit. And if that wasn't hella weird enough, in February 2017, she and Shepard were arrested at a Gowanus Whole Foods for shoplifting $1,149 worth of items at a nighttime spree. Lucky for them, the charges were eventually dropped. The next year, Laura gave birth to a baby girl and Shepard was the dad. Like, you can't make this stuff up. And in 2018, BC started to rent an apartment and he spent $30,000 to give this apartment living walls. You know, like when you put plants on the walls, which is nice in theory. I don't know why that's cost him $30,000 though. And he told the Times in an interview that his sex appeal has definitely increased. I'm on social dating apps and they love my living walls. Ugh, barf. Okay. And the whole time during all this, they kept illegally renting out their rooms and all their properties they owned. And they were fined another $17,000 for all the illegal shit they were doing with their rentals. But at the same time, Laura thought it was a good idea to open up another vegan or another place. It was a vegan restaurant called Planted Community Cafe. And she closed some of her yoga studios. But then the pandemic hit and their revenue streams dried right up. And at this point, they were carrying nine mortgages and they weren't playing their employees and everything kind of went to hell. So Madeline wrote this part, which just shook me. She said, another way to look at their downward spiral is as a parable of a housing market that's not primarily intended or even incentivized to actually house people. The market encourages buyers, whether Saudi princes or the owners of yoga studios, to treat homes like banks as places to put their money, whether or not they actually live in them. It also motivates developers to build luxury properties with the highest returns, housing fewer residents. And it's then she said, if there isn't a more explicit symbol of a housing market totally divorced from its human context than the eviction attempt at 1214 Dean Street. The tenants were largely in their 20s and 30s. Many were clear, queer, black or brown and employed in low wage service jobs. And these scumbags even tried to kick out a woman who was recovering from an emergency surgery to remove a mass of brain tumors. I mean, but by August, no tenants remained at 1214. The women who'd had surgery found a new place, but their rent had doubled. And uh, the the girl who, you know, underwent the surgery, she's undergoing chemo and radiation. Shoot, guys, I thought I had copy and pasted it. There was a link, a GoFundMe link. It was like Jamila brain tumor. It's in the comments to the article uh, to support her. But again, I just could not get over that. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Here we go. So it's, it's, uh, you can find her GoFundMe at help Jamila recover from brain surgery. And so far the landlords just like, don't give us shit. BC told the New York Post that he's targeted as a white man. He declined to comment for this story. Laura said that there was no eviction. She sent an email to the yoga teacher saying, uh, thanking them for all of their judgments, very yogic behavior. And then she ended by saying, I have to go back to work. Not everyone can sit around judging people and complaining all day. Also, apparently Laura is uh, at her vegan restaurant with no mask on serving people. She says she has antibodies and at one of their brownstones, it has anti-mask signs. And people in the comments were talking about how this is literally privilege at its finest you know, they're having these illegal rentals. They're not charged for stealing food from Whole Foods. I don't know. What do you guys think? Like, again, as a landlord, I know it sucks not getting paid rent, but this story is just like, oh, no, no, no to me. 
All right, something a little lighter, maybe not necessarily happier, but definitely a little lighter. Uh, It's about Bella Thorne. What exactly happened with Bella Thorne and OnlyFans by Hannah Gold? Are you guys familiar with Bella Thorne? Do I have any hooligans in here, listeners of Who Weekly? If you if you listen to them, you know who she is. But if you don't, Bella used to be this squeaky clean Disney star. And I would say she rebelled. She's 22 now. So do your thing, girl. Uh, please look up her most recent house. Its decor is zany. Let's go with that word. It definitely has personality. And Bella recently started an OnlyFans, which we've touched on it here before. But OnlyFans is an online subscription service. And it's often used for naughty pictures and videos but it doesn't have to be but it definitely has its fair share of sex workers on the site and right off the bat when Bella started her she made tons of money reportedly she made one million dollars at her first day on the site when she joined and she made two million in a little under a week so she charges twenty dollars for access to her page but the drama of this comes in when suddenly OnlyFans creators were told that There would be a limit on pay-per-view content, which would be $50 per user and a cap on tipping at $100. So I watched this girl on YouTube. Her name is Blair Walnuts, and she actually does reviews of people's OnlyFans. She's really fun if you want to watch. Um, So she doesn't show what's on the OnlyFans, but she'll kind of like, you know, say like what you're getting for your money. So basically how it works is you pay like the set fee to get in, and everyone has it set up differently. Some people charge way more per month some charge less then you can kind of pay per photo like if you want to view a certain photo it'll be like okay pay this and then you can tip the users like just kind of like a bone like kind of like what you do like a cam girl so OnlyFans denies that this is what caused this like cap on tipping and pay-per-view content, but the users believe that this was because of Bella, because Bella allegedly posted a pay-per-view photo for $200 that she said would be nude, but then it wasn't. So people pay $200, your credit card's already on file, so it's really easy. You just like click a picture, and then they see this picture, and I guess it wasn't a nude. So that led to people demanding refunds. So that's why, you know, the user's the sex workers on OnlyFans are like, yeah, that's what caused it. Like it was her lying about the content and then the the refunds being so much that OnlyFans like couldn't even cover it. So Jenna Fox, who she's been making money through OnlyFans since 2017, told the Times that she thought the company's response to the controversy was an excuse to cover their own butt. She pointed out that while Thorne is already rich and has many sources of income, OnlyFans is a full-time job for some of us. And it didn't hurt anyone but the sex workers community. Another fascinating layer to this story is that Bella claimed that she was only going on OnlyFans as a research project for an upcoming film project with Sean Baker, who directed the Florida Project. But Sean released a statement and he says, I would like to make it clear that the news of me making a film about OnlyFans and using Bella Thorne as research is false. I'm not attached to this project. And he said he had a conversation with Bella but they had just discussed a possible collaboration on the subject of OnlyFans. He said during that conversation, he specifically advised her team to consult with sex workers and address the way she went about this as to not hurt the sex work industry. And Bella has apologized, and she said that her intention on joining was to remove the set, the stigma behind sex work and that she's so sorry for hurting them in the process. And I have to say, I, I don't think Bella knew what would come of this. I don't know if it's true about the fact that she promised a new picture and it wasn't nude. She's saying she never did that. 
Bella's very free with showing herself and her sexuality. She was famously like in a relationship with Tana Mojo. So I I don't think she was ill-intentioned, but I don't know. Again, what are you guys' thoughts? Hit me up. Lastly, our legit shit for this week. I'm sorry this episode was so long, guys. I was just on a rant this week. Um, The legit shit, though, is free if you have HBO, and it's The Vow on HBO, which is about the Nexium cult. And I really liked the podcast on Nexium called Uncover, but this show goes so much more in depth and it answered a lot of questions I felt like I had after listening to Uncover. So I highly recommend it. It's the one that has like, you know, Allison Mack was arrested for and Keith Rainier. Super interesting. Again, I always would love to chat with you guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with a friend, subscribe, leave a rating and review if it's nice. If it's not nice and you just want to shit on me, like feel free to DM me your comments. I, I will take constructive criticism. I don't mind, but maybe just don't leave it in my, my reviews. Maybe do. But again, I will definitely, you know, if you want to email me, DM me, I will respond. And I will see you guys next week. Bye.